A quick note, we've just started a Substack, journalismsalute.substack.com. We'll have regular episode updates there. Plus, we'd like to hear from you. What do you want to hear from us in 2024? Let us know, journalismsalute at gmail.com. Now, on with the episode. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Divya Karthikeyan, the race and equity reporter for WFPL and the nonprofit newsroom Louisville Public Media. She previously worked for a collaborative of stations as a capital reporter at Kentucky Public Radio. Divya is originally from India and came to the States as a grad student at NYU. Hi, Divya. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. What's your journalism origin story? Oh, gosh. So I think I wanted to tell stories since I was 11 because I was going around and talking to every single neighbor. I was considered too friendly by my parents. And I think that's when I wanted to start sort of trying to get a window into the world of other people. And I think after... When I was 11, I knew, and then I, I feel like every other choice that I've made in my life has constantly been around wanting to be a journalist, which maybe I, I took a quick detour and wanted to be a lawyer, but I think every decision after that was to be getting to a point of wanting to do journalism. So that is a plus and a minus, but it I, I think I grew up with such a curiosity that was encouraged more importantly, by my parents. Can you explain your background in terms of where you're from and if there's anything in your family or heritage that actually lends itself to storytelling? I'm from Chennai, India. That is a uh, city in South India, part of Tamil Nadu. Well, I would say that when it comes to my heritage, I think I think a lot of us are storytellers I, my heritage is Tamar, and I think a lot of us are really, I think, tuned into, and I'll say India in general, to poetry and to literature. And I love writing poetry, and I think a lot of us are really, I don't know how to answer that question, I'll be honest, because I don't think there's anything specifically about my heritage, except that, in fact, I was kind of the black sheep. I was, I won't say the word anomaly, but I was kind of a black sheep in that everyone else had and believed in specific careers that were considered secure, which was, if you may have heard the stereotype, it was being a doctor, being a lawyer, or being, more importantly, engineering is big. And it is a very secure, steady career path. That's what you do. But for me, I think I was so doggedly in pursuit of this that there were points where I was like, maybe I should have just taken a secure path. I guess economically, otherwise as well in terms of security. But I think I I love this profession so much that for me, having that encouragement from my parents as well helped a lot for me to think, okay, I can't imagine doing something else. 
So your Twitter banner is a picture of Mary Tyler Moore, specifically from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Was that something that you became with familiar with in India or was that something that you became with once you came here? Oh my God. Since I came here during just before the pandemic, but we didn't know that a pandemic was going to happen. I think it was in New York. It was a very lonely and difficult time. And I think I was, when I came to Kentucky, I was also still, I think, in the process of assimilating. And I probably feel a little settled just now. But the Mary Tyler Moore show was something I just happened to put on as a sense of, as kind of a, hey, what was America in the 70s like? I'm curious how women were doing. Were women okay then? And I, it ended up being a comfort watch because this is a woman who, you know, sort of decided to pursue her passion and she is in her 30s and I just felt like oh okay there is there is a world like this and there is this woman who is unflappable and that's why I really liked her and she is a tv producer so that was a little adjacent as well yeah exactly that's why it it made sense uh, to me when I saw it what were some of the turning point moments for you within your career stops that led you to wind up going from India to Kentucky? So I was a journalist in India for about four years. I covered everything from state politics in the beginning in Tamil Nadu to caste inequality. That's where my work mostly went to LGBTQ rights and environment too, and a lot of intersections. And then around... I think the fourth year, I just applied to NYU on a whim. It was also the same time that I was feeling a little bit like my career there in India was a little done because I was a freelance reporter and I wasn't able to sort of get many assignments. I won't, I mean, it was really about the issue of press freedom there that has been declining. And I think it's gotten... It's gotten very difficult for journalists to do their jobs. I salute the journalists who are still doing their jobs incredibly well. I, you know, applied on a whim to New York University, got in, and then we, I, I decided, why not? And I've always wanted to, the work I was doing in India was already sort of long-form journalism, and I wanted to do more of that, and I had these grand ideas of doing magazine journalism in America, little did I know that it was hard for me to break into that. And I just happened to take a radio journalism course, introductory course that was required in our program. And I was like, okay, I'm not not a radio person. This is not going to happen. I'll just take this. And in the pandemic, I ended up making, I was bored. All classes had gone on Zoom. So I decided to make a podcast that was about the these long-form interviews on race and um, immigration and mental health, sort of the intersection and getting these interesting folks to talk about very novel stories. And it was not, it was, it was very bad production quality in that I used a earphone and the mic from the earphone in a closet. But I think that's when I kind of fell in love with it. And then I was applying to a lot of jobs and 
this job caught my eye and I will say that I didn't know much about Kentucky before I went and what a learning curve it was and I am so grateful and thankful for that and I ended up really falling in love with sound and audio. Was it like coming to Kentucky? I feel like I'd had one culture shock in New York and and for someone who's pretty, I don't know, who's pretty aware of American pop culture, it was still, <laughs> it was still very hard. And then I, coming to Kentucky, it was like, oh, assimilation 2.0. I, I had to figure out how to sort of, because it was, it's such, I slowly realized that each state in America is a different country of its own, like has its own culture has its own it's not a monolith and I it took me it took me a while to sort of get used to the environment here but I'll say that the people here are so kind and so welcoming and while it's sometimes hard for me to make friends in new places it took it took a while but it made everything so much easier I will say that I came at a time when I think two months since I came after I'd come to Kentucky and began my job and having to learn everything from the ground up, the we got the Dobbs decision and uh, we were just beginning to see a slate of uh, anti-LGBTQ or legislation targeting LGBTQ people and anti-trans legislation that came in really, really strongly. It was a difficult session and a time and I had to I had to learn everything about coming from a parliamentary system in a country to federal government systems. We don't have state supreme courts in India and you have state supreme courts here. It's just it was a whole different system for me, a different labyrinth. So I think I learned pretty fast and I couldn't do that without some incredible people who guided me through it. I'm so lucky who, in that sense. Who are those people? Two people. The one, the first person who helped me through sort of navigating all of this and uh, the the sort of doozy, to say the least, of how politics is, is Ryland Barton. He was my editor. And it was, I mean, I had to learn a lot. And he was, he's, he'd been in his job for, as a reporter covering politics for a while. And like he, he knew the ins and outs. And I was, I was really glad to sort of work with him. It was, it was also the other person is not my current editor. Her name is Amina Elahi. And she has been so instrumental in me understanding the city because I am now I had to shift from covering Kentucky and then I had to focus on Louisville and it's now you kind of know the city and state and how it works. And so being on the city team, sort of working with her, considering how there is such a history of this is, this is the city where that was also the sort of riptide for America in terms of racial justice protests wasn't, it was George Floyd and it was also Breonna Taylor. There was there was so much I had to learn and there was 
so many so many very interesting dynamics that I had to catch on to where what which aren't always very apparent to someone who's a transplant or someone new and so I think she she guided me there a lot she helped me take I took I took risks on this job in terms of the kinds of things I wanted to cover I was really interested in covering religion that's something I got to do I get to experiment with sound. I get to experiment with the kind of people I can talk to. I'm always on the lookout for, and she's always very careful about that in that we need to have diverse sources. We can't have the same folks all the time and the same demographic and identity of the people that we're interviewing. That's something that are, and that those are some lessons I learned that I think they've both really guided me through. All right, so let's talk about some of the stories that you have covered. And you mentioned Brianna Taylor. One of those stories recently, Brianna Taylor's mother campaigning against gubernatorial candidate, the Republican Daniel Cameron. What was the experience of talking to her mother like? I'm not going to be a stoic journalist and say that it was it was pretty hard. It was hard in terms of and I what made it easy was however it could be easy was her openness and her honesty and her willing to trust me and have faith in me. And what made it hard was, I think I wasn't here during the protests. I was, I had just moved to New York. I've only watched it from a distance, but I think I got a sense of really how I think what was happening for her internally and her own sort of battles that she had to fight in terms of how how do I process this? This is something that, you know, I did not as a mother expect to have to lead a revolution one day. That's something that she brought up a lot. And th- that is such an important point. And it was it was a difficult interview, but it was also so much, it was so... It was so easy in the sense that she was so open. And I think one thing, if I can add, that makes makes me get extremely neurotic and nervous about this job, but also helps me do my job better, I think, is every piece of sound or every quote that I get from a 30-minute to 20-minute, 40-minute interview, I only have... I have to make very careful choices in the quotes that I pick. And you can take one piece of tape that's 15 seconds and someone who's listening to it are pro- is probably going to hear that and think that it characterizes an entire human being. And I have to sort of understand, okay, I need to be intentional with what I'm picking. And at the same time, I can't expl- explain the entirety of this person in 15 seconds of tape or even lesser. And that's something I can, I really wrestle with. And that's something I did wrestle with when I was talking to Tamika Palmer, because she was, I, I, I just, I, it was very hard for me to pick what I could pick from that one hour interview, because I also wanted to honor how much she cared about her daughter and her memory and at the same time, her fight. 
there was another story that you did where you talked to people. There was a mass shooting in Louisville, and you talked to people who were dealing it after the fact. How do you make the decisions that go into how you present a story like that? One thing that's come up in covering race and equity, particularly with these stories, is I kind of want to go beyond a shooting happened or a or another shooting happened. And I think there are a lot of folks that are doing incredible work covering, you know, red flag laws, which I hope to cover someday, an angle of race and equity. But I think what I think about is how can I acknowledge some feelings that are very hard to acknowledge in people? And how can I present them? And how can that, how can my story sometimes be validating of those emotions? I think that was what I was trying to work into that story. And I worked with my amazing colleague, Morgan Watkins, who's our health reporter for this story. I think we were looking at how do we acknowledge these very, very conflicting feelings, complicated feelings that seemed that happen after a lot of shootings, either if they've, whether you've been affected by it very personally, or you are, you live in proximity, or you are in the same city, I think it can bring up so many emotions that people will sort of try to push under carpet because you just have to move on. This is happening so regularly. Other than, I think, acknowledging and validating those emotions. And there's a piece in that story where I'm talking to a young woman. For now, the younger generation is growing up under the shadow of gun violence, especially Black Louisvillians, like 15-year-old Brooklyn White. The first flicker of anger within her began in 2020 at the racial justice protests, and Brooklyn wanted to use that rage for good. She's part of Justice Now, which teaches and brainstorms solutions with Jefferson County Public School students about systemic issues. But Brooklyn is also torn between her love for Louisville and a growing feeling that she would be safer if she left. She's still holding out hope. I continue to advocate for my city. I continue to fight for my people and to be an active member in the community because I love my city. It's just my city's crazy. And she's talking about how she feels like leaving as much as she likes the city. and But she also feels like the city is not for her when you keep seeing this. And I think recently I've really wanted to bring in young voices because that's the generation that is going to take after us and going to have to deal with the consequences of so many decisions that we make today and our and our representatives and politicians do and even us and so i think that's something i've been recently centering a lot young people who are going to be affected or face the consequences or the trauma of decisions that powerful people make today How do you get people comfortable with talking with you, Uh, especially considering that you're in Kentucky and you don't necessarily look like a lot of the people there? I was thinking about this a lot, too. And I think there is there's a practice that I guess I got from being a freelancer in in India, which is if you have to sort of uh, maintain relationships and you are a freelancer, you're not with an organization I did a lot of this and I did it really just because I wanted to connect with people and I like talking to them. I would give folks calls sometimes or to check in and say, how are you doing? How's it going? We last spoke about 
for this story, if you remember me, but I'm just curious about how things are going. Sometimes it's like, do you, do you want a story? I said, no, I mean, have one great, but I just, I just wanted to say hello, you know, or how you're doing. I think that's something that's helped. And I just enjoy doing that. The other thing being that I think I start with trying to make them feel at ease especially folks who are very scared to talk about what they want to talk about when it comes to people who have to be held accountable. I kind of, I, I do the usual sort of, and I think a lot of, very classic, which is go easy and then sort of fifth question, sixth question, sort of layer it. And then your, the punch sits in like the fifth layer or the sixth layer or the the question sometimes you just let them talk and I think that's something that a lot of people think oh okay I haven't thought about that and also prep just prepare prepare not overly prepare and the other thing sorry being I did this recently which is and I do this with a lot of experts, obviously, but many other folks as well who are really passionate about something. I ask them to explain to someone who's listening in to our station. Okay, for example, I was talking to someone who studies theology and studies particularly the Southern Baptist Church. I asked him, I am Hindu, but forget me. If you were speaking to a listener who is Muslim or, you know, Sikh or Jewish, how would you explain a concept called biblical inerrancy? Biblical inerrancy is basically you follow the, the Bible, you know, uh, and not, you know, divert from it and follow it to the T. It doesn't adapt to the rest of the world or customs as as generations go on but when they think of that they they're just like okay now I need to explain it to someone who has never heard of this term but I can explain it in ways that are simple and I think that's that's one question that people are just okay I have to break this down explain this to me like I'm 10 years old explain this as simply as possible sometimes humor helps I joke around a bit, but not too much. Uh, there are also, there's a limit there. So that kind of helps the person open up. We talk about our day in the beginning, which some people kind of are not very uh, open to. I'm like, okay, let's get to the get to the point. And that's fine. And I learned over time not to over-prepare because being, being acting or being ignorant about certain things actually goes a long way. So I don't want to seem like, Oh, well, you've already done your research. You can, why are you talking to me? So I think those are some things that work for me. Is there a story that you've done recently that you're particularly proud of? You know, I didn't do it recently, but it was the first story on when I first got into the race and equity beat. It was derby season, the Kentucky Derby, the famous Kentucky Derby and I was really interested in the folks who really make the Derby what it is, which is not just the horses, not just the, you know, star trainers who've been there 
a long time. I did a story that was looking at Hispanic and Latino immigrants who basically make the Derby run. They are groomers for the horses. They are, you know, assistant trainers. And I was very curious to sort of understand what their days are like. And they are three six. They work three sixty five days a year. They work fourteen hour days. They've lo- they've come away from their families in their home countries for so long. And it's been 11 or 12 years since some folks have seen their families. It's a, it's a risky job, but I was so curious about both how hard that job is, how that's not recognized. And also, I mean, and we don't hear about their work a lot. And finally, also how they, how they have fun or make space to relax in those 365 days a year and I found that they have a massive party on Saturday evenings where you have a mariachi band you have you have someone who uh, is DJing you have them sort of partying till 3 a.m and hanging out there was great and so I didn't just want this to be about oh how I didn't want to make it sort of just a sort of sob story or really focus on, I don't always like the word resilience when it comes to immigrants all the time. While while there is a lot of resilience at the same time, there's a lot of grief and sort of difficult emotions behind it where you just have to keep going. And also how you make space for some kind of joy. I really wanted to get into that. What are some of the behind the scenes things that you're constantly thinking about when you're working with a producer on a story, whether it be that one or others? So I am my producer. I do my own sort of editing and mixing and my editors basically look at it and we look at structure, we write the script, everything, the research. We're a we're a we're not a very big shop, but we're a very good shop. And what are the stories that you're continuously following? Stories that I'm, oh my God, so much. We have our legislative session coming up in less than a month. And we have we have a lot of stories around. One I'm particularly following as a subject is juvenile justice. Juvenile justice, especially with what's happening with juvenile detention centers across the country, and especially in Kentucky has been something that I've been trying to follow as much as possible, especially with the way conditions have worsened and things have gotten really bad and to say the least, and I'm trying to dig into that. There is likely going to be more anti-trans rhetoric and possibly legislation that is coming up. That is something that I'm trying to follow in terms of how that's affecting Trans people, trans kids, LGBTQ kids, and also I think I'm interested in also looking at how kids of color are impacted and, and so much other, so many other pieces of legislation that are so intersectional with race and equity. Because at this, at this point, I feel like everything, everything is pretty much a race and equity issue. 
whether you, yeah, except that I think marginalized communities are not always centered in the big issues, I think. You mentioned when you talked about Brianna Taylor's mom, you know, the idea of not being stoic. Is it hard not to get attached to some of these stories emotionally? It is very hard. For me, it's very hard. And I I wish I knew the secret sauce to not being that attached, but it's also a double-edged sword because that also helps me reflect and make my work better and sometimes be like, okay, this this question could have been phrased better. And that's something that a lot of people, I think, can do without much of an very close attachment emotionally but for me I really I I need to take a lot of breaks which I'm trying to get better at but it does it does definitely affect me and at the same time I kind of have to say okay this is this is consuming me and I need to take a breath and I need to do something that I need to take a walk you know sometimes um, I was going to say and uh, this isn't meant to make fun but watch Mary Tyler Moore I was just going to say that. You yep. read my mind. Yep. I was just going to say that. There's seven seasons. There's a lot to go through. So I can obviously turn that on. What's the best part of the job? <gasps> oh, that's hard to pick one. But I'll say my colleagues are such amazing journalists. And I learn something from them every day. I love talking to them about stories that I'm looking at getting into rabbit holes and like I I just and sometimes I and I really like their insight of like so how is this going to work is this is this just a this is not a story yet I'm like I I hate that feedback but I you are right I think I think just having that sort of openness to be able to talk to my colleagues about it that's that's one of the best and second I get to talk to some really interesting people every day for me like I even when I'm I think in a low place otherwise in my life I feel like being able to interview someone for a story or one-on-one -on -one or talk about something for a story I'm like this is this is me in a candy shop this is this makes me very happy and I can, I can just get in the zone there. I think that's a, that those are moments that make me really love this job. Brings you back to when you were a kid too. And oh in terms God. of it, it takes you full circle to that, the very first question that we talked about with getting to, with being someone who talked to people a lot. Yeah. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Okay, I'll go with the first, the organization that I want to salute is definitely the 19th News. I think they are so thoughtful in the context that they bring to a lot of, their explainers are great, they're reporting is something that that sort of makes you think oh my god I did not think of that or it is oh my god they beat me to it damn it and I will say my journalism salute is to Austin Gaffney she is a freelance writer but she did this and she's been doing a lot of amazing work for a long time but recently she did this piece on the 
App Harvest, which is a startup that was going to come up in Eastern Kentucky. And now, you know, former workers spoke out and I think she did an incredible job covering that story. And Austin Gaffney is just, I mean, I've, I really loved sort of looking at her work over a long period of time. She's taught me a lot about weaving narrative into investigative, which is something I've always wanted to do and I hope I can do someday, but she she's so good at weaving narrative and investigative together. Sounds like a great salute, uh, both of them. Uh, Divya Karthikeyan, thank you for taking the time to join us. You are our 50th state. We have now interviewed a journalist either working in or working and or covering all 50 states in the United States. Thank you for joining us. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com. <laughs>